So this is now our second to last week of our series that we're doing on the Holy Spirit. And we've covered a lot of ground um, over the last six weeks. We've looked at Jesus and how he was born of the Spirit. And we've discussed the nature of the Spirit as a rushing wind. Ray shared with us about Jesus' time in the wilderness where he relied on the Spirit. And then we've looked at how we interact with the Spirit today, and we talked about not grieving the Spirit. Then last week, we heard the story of David's life, and we examined how he lived in the Spirit and how he responded to God when he had grieved the Spirit. And now today, we are going to talk about the ways in which we might quench the Spirit. So today's passage is just a very short one. It's from 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 19 to 22. Um, so I'm going to read it, but a few di- I'm going to read a few different translations of it because some of the words used vary from translation to translation, which help us to build a bit of a better or maybe more accurate picture of exactly what the text is saying. So I'll start with reading it from the NIV. It says, Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. And then this is what the NLT, the New Living Translation, says. Do not stifle the Holy Spirit. Do not scoff at prophecies, but test everything that is said. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. And then finally, I'm going to read it from the Amplified Bible. So the Amplified Bible has been one that's been put together in a way that brings the original Greek or Hebrew text of Scripture and the context that it was written to. Um, It brings those together. So it offers kind of a lot of extras within the passages, which pad out the meaning of the original words that were used, where English doesn't have a direct, kind of concise, accurate translation for. So this one will seem a bit more wordy, but the wordiness of it can be very helpful for us to understand the text. So this is what the, how the Amplified Bible puts it. Do not quench, subdue, or be unresponsive to the working and guidance of the Holy Spirit. Do not scorn or reject the gifts of prophecy or prophecies spoken revelations, words of instruction or exhortation or warning. But test all things carefully so you can recognize what is good. Hold firmly to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Withdraw and keep away from it. Let's just pray. Father God, we thank you for your word for the word that we have written to us for us to keep, your holy and true word. God, I pray this morning as we unpack this passage that you would be with us. May your Holy Spirit stir within us, and may we be ready to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So in this letter, Paul, the author, is writing to the church at Thessalonica. And in this passage in particular, he's likely addressing some of the concerns that the church had that they wrote to Paul about, um, or he would have heard about them on his travels. 
The short passage, it includes a series of five commands addressing how they are or possibly are not interacting with the Holy Spirit. And Paul offers some suggestions for how they might do so wisely. So his first command is don't quench the Spirit. We've spoken a lot over the last six weeks about how the Spirit dwells within us, about how God has given us the gift of his Spirit as our helper, our comforter, our advocate, as his presence with us. And we've also spoken about the the presence of the Spirit as a powerful rushing wind and about how we cannot control or pin down the Spirit So it's interesting that by merely giving this command, Paul is saying that we, as the ones who have been gifted the Spirit, we can affect the Spirit's ability to move and to work or to speak or to do whatever it needs to do in our own lives. Even though the Spirit is mighty and all-powerful and is the presence of God, God has gifted the Spirit to us, to dwell within us to go with us as we go in our lives. And as I put it a couple of weeks ago, just as passengers in a car are affected by the choices that the driver makes, so the spirit within us is affected by the choices that we make. And then while quench is quite a common translation that is given to Paul's words here, different versions of the Bible also use don't stifle the spirit. Don't subdue the Spirit. Don't extinguish the Spirit. Don't put out the Spirit's fire. Don't suppress the Spirit. Don't turn away God's Spirit. And all of these different interpretations can help us to build a fairly accurate picture of what Paul is suggesting we don't do. Because if we are to stifle the Spirit, we constrain the Spirit or restrict it. If we are to subdue the Spirit, then we quieten the Spirit. If we are to extinguish the Spirit, then we smother the Spirit. If we are to put out the Spirit's fire, then we drown out the Spirit. If we are to suppress the Spirit, then we conceal the Spirit, hide it away. And if we are to turn away from God's Spirit, well, we reject the Spirit entirely. And so when Paul instructs us not to quench the Spirit, he is saying, don't do all of these things. And all of these things suggest that in quenching the Spirit, whether we intend to or not, what we are doing is listening to other voices, looking to other sources, and holding other inspiration above that of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we're quenching the Spirit's ability to lead us and guide us and inspire us in our lives. Paul then, in the next verse, focuses on one particular way in which the Thessalonians have been quenching the Spirit. And that is through scoffing at prophecies or treating them with contempt. Now, Paul has already given us some information on prophecy in the Bible when he gave it to the church in Corinth back in 1 Corinthians. And he identifies prophecy as words or messages shared by the church to the church um, that strengthen, encourage, and comfort. If this is what prophecy is meant to be, then it all sounds very positive to me. And I wonder why would the Thessalonians 
be wanting to treat it with contempt or scoff at these words. And there could be a few reasons for that, and reasons that are probably still very relevant today. For some of the Thessalonians who come to faith, they would have come from pagan backgrounds, which participated in various mystical kinds of activities involving shrines and cults and the like. And so they might have been suspicious of what appeared to be a similar sort of practice happening in the church. Others may have been afraid of the power that was given to people through sharing and enabling prophecy in their churches, allowing anyone in the congregation to receive and to give messages from God for the people, a role that was generally reserved for only the leaders. And others may simply have been weary and distrusting of the gift of prophecy in human hands. They recognized that it was possible to fake or imitate genuine intimacy with the Spirit, so the gift could be abused or manipulated maybe for personal gain or to divide congregations. There is, after all, a risk when God gives such an awesome and holy gift to be used by human beings. Regardless of what the feelings or experience might have been amongst the Thessalonians, which caused them to reach out to Paul. Paul is writing to them to encourage them, don't simply throw the baby out with the bathwater, but rather become wise about the way that you are using it. Paul's words to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 14 certainly show how highly Paul valued the gift of prophecy as a spiritual gift for the church. He says, you should desire the special abilities the Spirit gives, especially the ability to prophesy. One who speaks a word of prophecy strengthens the entire church. I wish you all could prophesy. So next, Paul gives them some guidance for how they might wisely approach prophecy, which should also hopefully allay some of their fears. Paul instructs them to test everything and then hold on only to what is good and do away with whatever's evil. A fine line has to be walked because the words of prophecy are words given by the Holy Spirit. So we can't simply scoff at them or throw them away before we even hear them. But they are gifted to be delivered through human vessels. So we can't simply accept everything blindly because being human means bringing a certain margin of error, even though someone might say it's from the Spirit. And so we must be careful and test everything. Unfortunately, there's no real clear rules or guidelines laid out for testing prophecy, but we can take a couple of principles from Paul's letters and teaching First of all, often in his letters, Paul is urging the churches he's writing to to hold on tightly to the teachings that they have received from Paul and from his associates. And so that suggests that prophecy can be tested against the preaching and teaching of Jesus and about Jesus by the apostles, which conveniently has been recorded for us in Scripture. Scripture is God's word. 
his holy and divine word, which has been given to us to hold all of these reliable and spirit-inspired teachings. Just like in school when you get given a maths textbook, those things are generally very correct. And a teacher, they use the textbook to form their teaching around, to guide and test their teaching, because it's a true and an accurate source. Just in that same way, we can test what we hear or what is prophesied against Scripture. Secondly, we can also take from Paul's teaching on prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14 to know that true prophecy serves the church by encouraging, strengthening, and comforting, and that it works for the common good of the church body. That is the test of purpose and effect, a quick and simple analysis. If a prophecy that is spoken doesn't fulfill these things, if it isn't building up the church or seeking to encourage God's people, then there possibly is a reason to suspect its genuineness. And once we have carefully tested any prophecy we've received, we can know what is good. That, what we, that which we want to hold on to is from God. And we will distinguish what is evil or what is not from God. And we can throw it away. And though Paul might have specifically given this instruction just around prophecy and the Thessalonians' interaction with it, it is a good instruction to apply to wider life as well. The Spirit of God which we carry is almighty and powerful, but we do carry it within a human vessel. So we must be careful with how we or someone else might use or abuse the Spirit. But God has given us his word in scripture as a true and accurate source for us to test against. And he offers revelations which we know to be true and that can set the standard for us to weigh up anything against. I wonder how in your life you may have ever quenched the spirit. It may not have been intentional. It may have been out of fear because of a misunderstanding, or maybe because of your own weariness from previous experience. And I wonder how here at church we might have quenched the power of the Holy Spirit within our gatherings. Once again, has fear ever stopped you from sharing a prophecy or a word that you believe is for the church? Or has bad previous experience ever caused you to shut yourself off from even entertaining such ideas? I'd like to share a story of how I quenched the work of the Spirit in my own life. Now, I'm one of those people who has a lot of dreams. Not necessarily like life dreams, but a lot of sleeping dreams. There wouldn't be many nights where I sleep without dreaming about something. And most of the time, I can remember quite clearly the dreams that I've had. I still remember dreams that I had as a child. There's one in particular that stands out, and it was in three parts. And over three nights, I dreamt one complete dream. It was quite, it was quite wild. 
And for the most part, I mean, the dreams I have, they're pretty ridiculous, really. Ridiculous inflations of something that's happened in the day or something that's going to happen. I had a lot of panicked dreams after I bought my wedding dress online about it arriving and being too short or not the right colour or with stains on it, all that sort of stuff. And I never really read too much into my dreams because they're always just quite silly and I just enjoy laughing about them when I tell Josh the next day. But there was a time in the last year that I had this common theme running through the dreams I'd have on a Saturday night. And I was like, hmm, that just seems a bit odd. So for weeks and weeks in a row, all of my dreams on a Saturday night were always about church the next day. And they were always about things going like horribly wrong. And so in my dreams, I mean, church wasn't always here in the building. One time I was presenting my sermon in Bunnings um, or another strange place like that. And often the people that were here weren't necessarily you guys who are regulars, but it was like friends from primary school or the neighbours from down the road or just completely random people that I didn't know. But each Saturday night, I'd have these dreams of this really exaggerated version of church where things would not go right, no matter what I did. And I would get so frustrated and I'd feel so helpless because there was nothing I could do about it. Like, how was I going to politely ask that couple who were dancing on the stage behind me to stop doing that? Or how could I stop everyone in the congregation from just talking through my entire sermon without seeming vain and like I just wanted people to look at me? Or why had that person just gotten up and taken over, even when I told them I had it all in hand? I kept having these dreams over and over again and always on a Saturday night. And they'd wake me up about three or so in the morning and then I'd lie there just thinking about church and being like, how am I going to keep it in check this week? Keep the dancing down. But like I said, my dreams were often just really silly. But because these ones kept happening, I thought I'd ask my mentor if she could maybe help me shed some light on possibly why this was happening. And I mean, it was a bit of a strange topic to introduce, but she took it well. And after she'd listened to me telling her what these dreams were like, she thought for a moment just before asking... What do you reckon the reason that people should come to church for on a Sunday is? Why do you think they should come? What do you think they should do here at a service? And it seemed kind of a random question after my epic tales, but I didn't have to think too long before I said, well, I guess church is a time where we come together, um, just gather to be with God. And when I said that, she just nodded and said, hmm, to be with God. And after that, we kept on talking and discussing why I might be having these dreams. But she kept reminding me throughout, remember, you said church is a time to come together to be with God. And I was like, yes, yes, I said that. And she asked me to consider over the next week, um, what was the reason that I came to church on a Sunday? What did I come to church on a Sunday to do? And then before we parted ways, she reminded me again, remember, be with God. And so I did think about why I came to church on a Sunday. And as I was thinking, I was like, well, coming to church on Sunday is a part of my job. Running the services on a Sunday, planning them, facilitating them is a big part of my job. So I guess I come to church on a Sunday to do my job. 
And doing my job on a Sunday means having a plan, you know, having a sermon prepared, having the worship team prepared, having any extra people involved in the service prepared. And then I'd have to implement that plan. I'd have to um, facilitate it on a Sunday, stick to the plan so that I wouldn't forget anything, so that things would transition well, and so that those others involved could also trust and rely on this plan. And then I weighed up my answer about what I'm here for on a Sunday with the reason that I'd given for others to come on a Sunday. And it just didn't quite fit. I had said that the reason we should come to church on Sunday was to gather together and be with God. Yet the reason I came to Sunday to church on a Sunday was to do a job, make a plan for the service and implement that plan. And it wasn't right. Because at the end of the day, I'm still a part of this congregation just like the rest of you. And I was so pleased to find that after that discussion with my mentor, the dream stopped. And if at any point, day or night, I found myself worrying about church on a Sunday, I would stop and remind myself, church is a time to come together to be with God. And it might seem like a very obvious and basic reminder, something that you probably hoped I already knew, but I had to reteach myself that fact. Yes, my job is to plan and facilitate Sunday services, and I really enjoy doing it. But that task and completing that task should never have become the reason that I'm here on a Sunday. Just like I would hope it is for the rest of you here today, it should be the same for me, that I come here on a Sunday to gather together with you all and be with God. I had quenched the work of the Spirit in my own life by completely focusing myself on getting tasks done and not even re realizing that I had limited the Spirit's space to breathe or room to move or time to speak. I had allowed the planning and the facilitating to rob me of the time I had on a Sunday to make myself available to God alongside you all. And I didn't intend to, but I had prioritized other things above the Spirit. And in turn, I'd quenched the Spirit's ability to guide me and lead me and to inspire me on a Sunday morning. And that's not to say that the Spirit didn't work despite my humanness and despite my lack of focus, because God is certainly big enough to still work despite me. But I had certainly severely limited the time and the focus that I had to give to the Spirit on a Sunday morning because I was so set on getting things done and presenting a polished performance. But hopefully we know from last week that a flawless performance is not what God wants of us. God wants us simply as we are, as broken and as flawed as that may be. He wants us in our natural state, no strings attached, with a heart that is willing just to be with him. And when we come to God just to be, to be close to him and to simply soak in his presence, that's when we make ourselves available to hear the words of the Spirit, gifted through us as human vessels for the encouragement and strengthening of the church. 
So I thought that that might be what we do this morning. Take some time to just sit in silence and give our time to the Spirit. We're going to sit as a church and simply be with God. And the silence is probably going to be awkward. And it's probably going to be hard to keep your mind from wandering off. But I ask you just to try your best to keep your mind focused on, on the Spirit. And we'll give the Spirit time to do or to say whatever is needed. And if you feel that you have something to pray out or something, God gives you something to share, please do share it. But just give us a couple of minutes in silence at the start, just so we all have opportunity um, to hear from God and give him the time that he needs. Then at the end, I'll pray to wrap it up and the band will come back up and we'll finish with a song. But just for now, let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And we just ask, Holy Spirit, we welcome you here this morning and we ask that you would come and speak to us. We're going to wait here, Holy Spirit, and just wait upon you. And we ask that you would come. Give us words that strengthen and encourage others. And give us the boldness to speak them out.